We are going to be in Psalms 42 and 43 this morning. Uh, if you're still there from earlier, that's great. If not, go ahead and open up to there. What do you do when you're doubting something? Are you the type of person that just tries to get as much information as you can to try to make a better informed decision? Do you just try to work extra hard to take your mind off of it? Or maybe you just pursue those little, those little things of pleasure. Right? If I scroll through my phone long enough, watch enough Netflix, there'll be enough noise to drown out all these thoughts running through my head. But what do you do at night when there's no more work to do and when your phone isn't as distracting as it was earlier in the day? When you're lying there alone with your doubts, what do you do? We all know what the correct answer is, right? We go to God, we pray, we, we read our Bibles. But what do we do when God is the one that we're doubting? When we pray and it feels like the words are just bouncing off the ceiling. Or we try to read our Bibles and we realize we've been staring at the same sentence for 20 minutes and it just feels lifeless. Where do we go when we turn to God and it seems like he isn't there? When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he was devastated. And he started writing in a journal, and eventually it was published into a book called The Grief Observed. And that book is unlike anything else that he wrote. All of the, the clarity and the confidence that marked his works are just gone. As he's doubting all of these things that he used to be so confident in, that he used to write about and teach about, it's all gone. And he says early in the book, when he's like really in the depths of his, his grief and his despair, he says, I don't think that I'm in danger of not believing in God. I think I'm in danger of believing things about God that are too terrible to think about. What are we supposed to do when he is the reason that we're doubting? When he's the reason that we go about with our insides tied up in knots and our thoughts clouded. For a long time, I think the answer you would most likely get from fellow Christians is, oh, don't talk like that. You shouldn't say things like that. You know that's not true. Don't say that. You, sh you should 
take your doubt and just like sweep it under the carpet, hide it away, and it'll just go away eventually on its own. And in reality, when it's left just hidden away, it doesn't go away, it just like festers and rots. And now, over the last few years, I think the growing trend would be to say, no, you need to embrace your doubts. There are circles within evangelicalism that would encourage people, you should foster that. You, you should celebrate that. For these people, it seems like their doubt becomes the thing they try to build the rest of their faith on. Like, that's the foundation. That's the thing that I know is true. The one objective thing that cannot be questioned is I have this doubt here and there's nothing that can deal with it. And so then I have to build everything else around that. Instead of hiding their doubts away to fester, they end up just feeding them. And all too often, this leads them to deconstruct their faith until it seems like there's nothing left of it. Some of you might be there this morning. You might be filled with doubts about God. You might be like Lewis and think there are things that I think about God that are too terrible to contemplate and I can't say them out loud. Some of you aren't there this morning, praise God. But you may have been there in the past and you almost certainly will be there at some point in the future. And so for those of us who doubt at times... For those of us who think things about God we think are too terrible to be true, our psalmist offers us a different way of handling it. He doesn't hide it away. He doesn't feed it. But he does bring it out into the open, into the light of day. He brings out all of his doubts and his fears and his trepidations And he reminds himself continually that even though his hope might falter, the object of his hope, his God and his salvation, will not falter. If you're not there already, go ahead and open up to Psalm 42. And we're going to read the first four verses again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. As the deer pants for flowing streams, 
so pants my soul for you, O God. How many times have we heard that phrase or read it or sung it as just like a really nice picture of how much we need God? But when you put it together with verses 3 and 4 where he says, when shall I come before you? My tears have been my food day and night. He's not just saying, God, this is how much I love you. I love you like the deer loves water. No, he's saying the deer is thirsty because there is no water. God, I'm thirsty. Why are you so dry? The psalmist finds himself in a desert, feeling like his mouth is so dry and full of cotton that it sticks to the roof of his mouth, like he can barely swallow. And he, he tries to go to God, and there's no relief. He longs to drink, deep, drink deeply of the Lord, and yet he finds God dry. Right, the psalmist brings new meaning and new despair to the phrase, water, water everywhere, nor yet a, do- a drop to drink. God, there's water everywhere, but the only water you've given me are my own tears. Where are you? This was one of the things Lewis said that he was in danger of believing. He said, God, you promised Ask and it will be answered. I'm begging you for answers and all I hear is silence. You promise knock and it shall be open and I've been banging on the door and instead of hearing a warm and welcoming invitation, the only thing I hear is the deadbolt slamming shut. Where are you? And for the psalmist, this isn't just an internal struggle. It's bad enough when you're like Lewis and you're thinking those things on your own in the depths of your heart. But the psalmist has people outside saying the same thing to him. All day he hears, where is your God? You talk such a big talk about how, oh, my God is everything. Oh, he's He's food and drink to me. He's all that I need. Where is he now? If your God's so great, why are you so thirsty? And the hardest part is, he doesn't have an answer for them. He doesn't give a rebuttal to their mockery. I think because he doesn't have one. Is that you this morning? If someone were to ask you, where is your God? Would you just have to stare at them in silence with tears in your eyes because saying nothing is easier than saying, I don't know. I don't know where he is. 
But it wasn't always like this. He remembers when things were better, when they were different. As I remember, as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng. I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He used to be filled with gladness that would overflow and would spill out of him onto those around him. He didn't just used to go to God. He used to bring others with him. He used to lead them to the waters that would satisfy. I think somehow that almost makes it worse because all it is is a memory at this point. What's he supposed to do now? What are you supposed to do when you're dry and thirsty and there's no nourishment coming? What do you do when you long to come before God again and you feel like he's not there? The psalmist gives his answer in verse 5. And it's the refrain that he keeps coming back to. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is temporary. It might not feel like it. It might feel like I'm going to die of thirst. It might feel like God is never going to be there again when I turn to him. But that is temporary and it is not true. The psalmist knows that even though his hope is faltering, God, the object of his hope, will not falter. All right, great, we're done, right? He gave us the answer. It's the end of the psalm. Verse 5, why are you cast down on my soul? Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. All, the reality is he is cast down. Things haven't gotten any better. They've gotten worse. He goes on in verse 6 to say, From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, that's where he's remembering God from. Those were places that would evoke memory and imagery of God's victory over Israel's enemies, of God providing the promised land to them, of him fulfilling his promises. Like in the first stanza, he remembers these things. But they were a long time ago now. On top of that, these are areas that are far away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is where the temple is. The temple is where God's presence was literally physically dwelling. So I look around me, God, and I see all of these things that remind me of your victory and of your promises fulfilled. But this isn't where you are now. You're far from this place. And again, that could be you this morning. You look around and you see all these things around you that remind you of the ways that God has been victorious in the past. But all the power that you felt when that was happening is gone. This isn't where he is now. But there is one reminder of God's promise, or God's presence, sorry. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. In the first stanza, he's dry, he's thirsty. Now he's overwhelmed by water. God, I was thirsty before, but now I feel like you're trying to drown me. God, I'm in the middle of a storm. And the hardest part is I know that it's your storm. It's your waterfalls that are deafening me. It's your waves that are crashing over me one after another after another so that I feel like I can't breathe. God, you're the God who calms the storm. Why aren't you calming this one? And he can see God's grace in it. He says that by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. So it's not like before where he's left alone with just his tears. There's grace in the storm. But God, I need some relief from the storm. The storm just won't... Let up. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? God isn't merely distant anymore. He's not merely dry when the psalmist is thirsty. No, now he's forgotten him. And I don't know if the psalmist had this in mind, but when I was reading this, it reminded me of the story of Noah. Because the way Noah is laid out, and it's a similar or a, a common literary structure in Hebrew, there's one central thought at the very heart of the story of Noah. Right in the center of the story, smack dab in the middle, is the phrase, but God remembered Noah. Everything that was leading up to that, the declaration of wrongdoing, the warning, the preparation, the destruction, the death, the floodwaters, the undoing of creation, 
All of that is leading up to that one idea, but God remembered Noah. And then everything flows back. The waters recede. Creation is restored. God provides dry land, promise, and covenant, and worship. And And all all of that that is flowing out of that that same central idea, but God remembered Noah. But God has forgotten the psalmist in the storm. So yeah, there's some grace. But what I need is a break from the storm. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Whatever the circumstance is painful, as hard as it can be, if it throws me against Christ, then I have learned to kiss it. But what about when you keep missing the rock? When all it is is wave after wave, and you're battered and broken, and you can't breathe. God, I know that you're showing me grace and love. But I still can't get out of this storm. And what's his proof that God has forgotten him there? He still has that outside voice. Second half of verse 9, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God now? The psalmist has his refrain, but his enemies have theirs too. Where is your God? Where is your God? Where is he? God, I need some relief from this. I can't keep going on. I don't have an answer for them. I don't know where you are because you've forgotten me. And in spite of all that, he continues to sing, verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is temporary. It might not feel like it. It might feel like I'm going to be lost in the storm forever, that God will perpetually and eternally forget me. It might feel like those wounds of the enemy constantly taunting me. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Are going to kill me one day. But it's not true. It won't last. What is true, what I still hold on to, is that you are my hope. My hope's faltering. But you will never falter.
even though he knows that, even though he continues to go back to it and to hold on to it, this downward spiral that he's caught in continues on into Psalm 43. Vindicate people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Vindicate me, God. Defend me. Vindicate yourself, God. I don't have an answer for them. I need you to show up. Prove to my enemy, prove to our enemies that you are who you say you are. And still nothing. God, you are my only refuge. You are all I have. God, I don't have anything but you. Why have you rejected me? The psalmist is at his lowest point here. He's not just thirsty and failing to find relief in God. He's not just lost in the storm feeling like God has forgotten him. No, this isn't a passive thing. God has actively, purposely rejected me. There's nothing I can do to escape this downward spiral of doubt and depression and despair that I'm in. Yet even now, Maybe only now. The psalmist sees his ultimate need. Verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. God, I can't do anything about this anymore. I can't slake my thirst. I can't get out of the storm. I have nowhere to turn to. You've rejected me. But you can still lead me out of this. If you send out your light and your truth, you can bring me back to yourself, to where you are again. And when that happens, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Then I will be able to come to you and I will praise you again. If you look back at each stanza, each one has a reference to his desire to be in the temple to worship. And to be with God. Right, back in 42 verse 4. I remember how I would go with the throng. How I would lead them in procession. And then in verse 6 of 42. He remembers from a distance. 
He's separated. He longs to be back. And then here in 43, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Throughout this, in each stanza, no matter what he's going through, he wants to be in God's presence with God's people to praise him. And so I have to ask, when you're struggling, and you're doubting and despairing, where do you go? Where do you want to go? Where do you desire to be? Are you coming here like the psalmist is desiring to? Because we need each other all the time, but we need each other all the more when we are going through these things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that one of the reasons that we need each other so much is that because sometimes the Christ in our brother's voice is stronger than the Christ in our own hearts. We need to constantly be preaching to ourselves the same refrain that the psalmist has. Hope in God, my salvation and my God. We need to do that. But we also need to hear that from each other too. Because sometimes you go around all day saying hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. He is my God and my salvation. He is my salvation. And it just feels lifeless. And then all of a sudden, someone tells you, hope in God. He is your salvation. And all of a sudden, those words are filled with power again. When we are doubting and despairing, we need to be here with each other. Because we need to not just preach this to ourselves, we need it preached to us from one another. One final time, the psalmist preaches that refrain to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You'll notice things never got better. He knows the right thing to do. He keeps doing it. Hope in God. He keeps telling himself that. He keeps holding on to that. He knows that the object of his hope will never falter. But things keep getting worse. That doesn't mean that he is wrong to keep preaching that to himself. We like the fixes that we are expecting, and we like them right away. But God doesn't always work like that. So when you're struggling, when you're doubting, and you continue to hold on to him and to hope in him and know that he will never falter as much as you doubt, and it gets worse, and you start doubting more, it doesn't mean that it's not working, that you're doing something wrong. 
when I was working at the 911 center, there would be times where I was under unbearable amounts of stress, where I, I felt like I couldn't function. And during those times, I had this insatiable desire for God's word, and I would just read it constantly. And the time that I would do that would be so good. And then it felt like as soon as I closed my Bible, my stress levels just shot right back up again. And it could be discouraging, like, God, am I... Am I doing something wrong here? I'm going to your word, and it seems so good when I'm in it, but if it's as good as I think it is, shouldn't it have some staying power to it? And I think the psalmist can relate to that, and I think he would say it's okay to feel that way and be in that spot. As long as you keep coming back again. There are going to be times where it feels like it isn't working. Where God should have entered into this and fixed it already and he hasn't. But that doesn't mean that he's faltering. It doesn't mean that he's not accomplishing the purposes that he wants to. It doesn't mean that he's forgotten or rejected you. Most of the time, it just means he's doing things different than what we want him to do. And so we keep holding on to the fact that he is our God and he is our salvation. That even though by now I can't help my hope faltering because it's been a long time and it's just getting worse. We know that what is true, that what the rest of our faith is built on is the fact that he won't falter. That he is our God and our salvation. We could end there. We're at the end of the psalm. We could end. But we wouldn't really be finished. Because there's one difference between the psalmist writing this and now. One huge, monumental, earth shattering difference. God has sent out his light and his truth. For the psalmist, that was. A kind of vague, unclear hope of a future promise. For us, that is a tangible, flesh and blood historical event that we can look back on in full detail. Listen to John 1. In the beginning was the word the true word. And the true word was with God and the true word was God. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That true word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace 
and truth. God has answered the psalmist's final plea, his ultimate need and desire. He has sent out his light and his truth incarnate so that he can bring us back to his holy hill. There are going to be times, there might be so this morning, where you are thirsty and you feel like God is dry. But you can have confidence in the fact that Jesus has said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There are times when God is going to feel distant, when you're not even sure if he's there at all. But his light and his truth crossed a vast chasm and took on our flesh to dwell with us, to be with us. There are times when you're going to feel forgotten. Like God has left you in the storm. But he, in a very real sense, went to the cross knowing the Father would forget him and leave him in the storm so that we would always be remembered. He was rejected for us. He was the delight of the Father for all of eternity and the Father rejected him, and he went to that willingly so that we could never be rejected. There are times when you're going to doubt God. You're going to doubt his goodness, or his power, or his mercy and grace. You might even doubt if he's even there at all. But those things are true. Your hope in them might falter, but Jesus Christ will never falter. Keep returning to what you know. Build on that. Hold on to that for dear life. He won't falter. I'm going to end with this. That phrase, my soul is in turmoil within me, was translated by the Septuagint, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, as my soul is very sorrowful. You're probably thinking, okay, great, why? The Septuagint was widely used in Jesus' time. And Jesus quoted the Septuagint translation of these Psalms in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. Jesus, in his darkest hour, when he was about to pray, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, when he knew he was about to be distanced from his Father in a way he had never been before, that he was about to be forgotten and rejected, He took his closest friends aside, Peter and James and John, and he said, my soul is very sorrowful. 
Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus knows our weakness, and not in some theoretical way he knows about our weakness. He knows our weakness because he has experienced it with us. In the garden, God seemed far off from Jesus. In the garden, Jesus was thirsty. And the only thing to drink were his own bloody tears and the cup of bitterness and wrath. In the garden, Jesus knew that he would be forgotten by the Father. In the garden, Jesus knew that he was about to be rejected by the Father. And his soul was very sorrowful. Your hope might falter but he won't falter. Having come through the garden and the cross and the grave, he won't leave us feeling thirsty and alone forever. He won't leave us feeling forgotten or rejected forever. He went through those things himself and he was sorrowful and roiled inside at it. And he passed through them and conquered them, and he will not leave us in them either. He has passed through and is in the presence of the Father, and he will bring us through to be with him on his holy hill, where we can see him face to face, where our hope will be sight, and that will never falter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our sure hope. You are faithful when we are faithless. You are the only rock, the only refuge we could ever go to. Lord, we love you and we are only satisfied with you. And if there are people here this morning who are struggling with that and doubting it, Lord, I just ask that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would give them rest from the storm, that they would see the sure place that they have in you. Lord, we all come to you thirsty. Fill our hearts with rivers of living water. And let us not be dry again. We'll pray this in your name.